0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's Word. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to live, to, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Amen. We trust that God will.
1: Well, it would be a bad thing if the preacher fell asleep during his own sermon, wouldn't it? It would be, <laughs> it would be a bad sign. Hopefully, we can stay awake. Hopefully, we can endure this. Uh, here this evening as we get to open up God's Word. Please do open up your Bibles with me uh, to First Thessalonians chapter 4. As we think about this part of our series, what does it mean? What does it mean to live the ordinary Christian life? How can we live as ordinary Christians? The Lord comes to us in His grace. His voice calls us. He draws us to Himself, as we have thought about, irresistibly. He saves us, gives us new life. He gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us. But then what happens? How do we go about being Christians? Well, some words are going to come up on the screen, and I want you to think about what these words are describing, okay? So everyone will have a different picture in your mind. Radical. Epic, revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge. The next big thing explosive breakthrough. What do you think those things are describing? I can tell you this, it's not how Nigel and myself play golf. That is not what's going on. It is not words to describe the new Top Gun movie, although it is pretty good, but it's it's not those. It's not words that are going to describe Apple's latest product, their new iPhone or their new laptop. What are these words? Well, we often find these words attached to the Christian life. Radical, epic, revolutionary the next big thing. And if it's not attached to the Christian life, it's attached to a church or to a program in that church. And so what happens is that we, that we start off in the Christian life, do you know, the, like the firework, the trail that comes in behind it? it? It's leading up to this big crescendo, and then it explodes. It's, it's amazing. It's extreme. It's ultimate. And then that's it. It fades, and it withers, and it dies. And so often in the Christian churches, we go through being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are tacked on to everything that we do. And where does it leave us? Well, it leaves us shrugging our shoulders whenever we arrive into work on a Monday morning or into school or into university. And you really don't know how to follow Jesus because the spreadsheet, well, the spreadsheet doesn't look that emergent or that awesome. The exam, you're not thinking of it as being life-changing or an explosive breakthrough or the next big thing. How do we live for Jesus in the ordinary? How do we live for Jesus in the normal day-to-day rhythm of life? Not blockbuster Christianity, but just normal Christianity here in Northern Ireland. When you've got spreadsheets that need sent to the boss when you've got the next mundane job to do at work, when you have an essay or a homework to be handed in, exams to revise for, groceries that need bought, the house needs hoovered, the grass needs cut, the dog needs walk, how do we live for Jesus? And you see, what happens is, if we tack all of these words onto our faith, well then, everything else seems a little bit bland, unexciting, and even Boring. And living for Jesus, living for Jesus doesn't sound that rad- radical or epic or innovative or extreme anymore. And we're left feeling deflated. And so what do we do with that? Then we, we try to chase new things. It's like chasing spiritual fireflies. We see this, this next bright thing and we, and we go after it, and then it falls short again. So what does it look like to be a normal Christian today? Well, let's think about who does Jesus call. Way back in in Matthew chapter 4, who does he call to follow him? He calls normal people to follow him, doesn't he? Normal men and women. His disciples are normal people. There's nothing special about them. They're fishermen or they're tax collectors. It's normal people. And we have lost this largely, or we've started to lose it, in that we're making Christianity into this thing that is more than what we have known as the ordinary means of grace. Praying isn't enough anymore. Attending church week in and week out. Doctrine and discipline, well, they're not cool anymore. Actually serving in the church, that's a little bit boring. Giving to the church, well, take it or leave it. It all becomes dull and bland. And we want the next dazzling moment. And we see it all around us, don't we? People undervaluing the the normal rhythms of church life, of preaching, of the sacraments, of prayer, of praise, of teaching, and of fellowship. And what's the consequence? The consequence, if we live that first slide life of Christianity, the radical, the emergent, the the firework-type Christianity, well, it will leave us with no depth, and it will leave us unsure of our identity. i trying to think about it like this. We were thinking last week about the body, how the body grows strong in the discipline of the Lord. Well, to live this type of Christian life, that explosive Christian life, what is it like? Well, it's like being fed sugary treats all of the time and living on fizzy juice, no substance, little spiritual nutritional value. And the result is a huge dietary deficit. And we walk about with anemic bodies. And that's what we want to avoid. So, how can we grow strong? How can we live the normal Christian life? How can we live in the ordinary? Well, we've got to understand that we are ordinary, but that He is not. We are ordinary Christians, but who is our God? He is extraordinary. He's the one that is magnificent. He's the one that we want to turn our attention towards. He's the one that we want to focus on, not ourselves. He is stunningly glorious and resplendent, all-powerful, all-present, infinite, eternal, holy, and wise. And He calls us to follow Him. He makes dead people live. And he gives life to spiritual corpses. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we follow. Look at it with me in First Thessalonians chapter 1. So as we start to get this into our framework, and for some I think tonight this is going to be really difficult. Because for, especially if you're in the younger category, you've been told your whole life that you are extraordinary, right? That you're the next best thing. That, that you're going to conquer the world. We are ordinary. He is extraordinary. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Doesn't sound ordinary. Sure, it doesn't. Because He's extraordinary Look what he's doing in people's lives. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See how he starts to change lives. The extraordinary God working in ordinary people. And so he calls us to come and to follow him. here's another way of trying to illustrate it for us this evening. You know what it's like at Christmas time, and someone suggests it's time to play a board game. And you think to yourself, oh no, no, not board games. We don't want organized fun. There's bound to be dishes that need done, or maybe if I close my eyes really quickly, they'll think that I'm asleep. I just want to escape this, because you know that you're no good at articulate. You know that you're no good at charades, and you just just want to be left alone, sort of in your food coma, right? You just want to sit there. Don't don't force me to have fun. And so anyway, you're held hostage, and you know, you know that in this game you're going to be really average. You're the ordinary player, and then as the teams are allotted, what do you see? You see the, the over-energetic person, the person who is extremely competitive being placed into your team, and you think, oh, happy days. If I score zero, they'll score about 10, and we'll be fine. They'll be the one who achieves. The Christian life sometimes can feel like that moment whenever somebody suggests the game. Oh, but I'm average. I've sinned this week. I've messed up again. I'm not like all of those other people. I'm not like the energetic person. I can't can't do this. Whenever you hear the call of the gospel to come, and to follow Jesus, you think, there's no way my, my knees are weak, my legs are weak. I'll just trip up and I'll fall again and again. I'll make a mess of this. Jesus wouldn't want me. He wouldn't want me in his team. He wouldn't want me to actually come and follow him. But the ordinary Christian life says that, yeah, we're all ordinary. We're all sinners. We're all a little bit of a mess. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who achieves for us. He says, I have done this for you so that you don't have to. You can come and join me and enjoy me. 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 1 and verses 9 through 10. Look at it. Look at what God's done in their life. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you see the extraordinary work of God as he saves people? The one who has worked throughout history to rescue his people. So, what is the call? What is this call of God? What are we to be doing? If He has saved us, if He's the extraordinary one and we're the ordinary one, then what do we do next? What's His call? How do we figure out His will for our lives? Well, we see it here in His Word. What does He call us to? What does He want us to be about? Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. And this is our first point, the call of God, first of two points this evening. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Look at verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. See how he lays it out for us plainly. We don't have to guess. You know what it's like whenever you're sent out to do that job and you're given the most general brief ever? Go out, go, just go out to the garage and tidy things up a little bit. And you go out to the garage and you sort of scratch your head and think, what am I meant to be doing here? Is this good stuff or is this bad stuff? Is this stuff for the bin or is it not for the bin? And you don't really know what you're doing. And you dither and you're unhelpful and you end up just sitting down. It all leads to inaction. Well, what does God do for us here this evening? He gives us laser-accurate advice, laser-accurate information about the call of what He has for our lives. Verse 3, This is my will, that you would be sanctified, that we would be holy, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed and carved and sculpted and hacked and mown and pruned into shape, into people who look like Jesus. And that doesn't happen. To be made holy, that doesn't happen in a one-off event, in this second blessing type of event, that you're, you're trundling along in the Christian life, and then there's this evening, an experience, and you bump up to a second tier. That is not what the Bible teaches. Sanctification doesn't look like a one-off program or course. It doesn't like paying some preacher on the God channel some money so that you can sur- suddenly be sanctified. How do, how do we grow in Christlikeness? Well, it happens in the ordinary rhythm of life. Whenever it's difficult to live for Jesus, it happens at the work gathering. It happens at the lunch table. It happens whenever you come home after a long day and you really have very little patience left. It happens whenever you have had very little sleep. It's displayed in how you spend your money on Amazon with the words that you use about people. In the nine-to-five life, whenever you aren't at church through all of your spending of money and relationships and time, that's where you see your sanctification. Taking decisions for Jesus Christ, growing in His likeness in the nine to five whenever you're not at church or whenever you're not speaking to one of the elders or to your Christian friends. That's where we start to see God shape us. And it's throughout the New Testament, isn't it? All of the epistles, what does Paul continually come back to? crucify the old self, die to the old self, and live for Jesus. But what I want to press upon you tonight is that that is just ordinary. That's what it means to be an ordinary Christian. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing that you do so more and more. He's urging them. This is what it means to live like a Christian. Why? Scroll down with me to the the bottom of of chapter 4, verse 12, the, the section that we read. Why does he want them to do this? why does God want them to do this? So that they can live lives before the world, so that they can walk properly. You see it there, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before the outsider, so that the world will see you, not in the spectacular firework moment, but in the ordinary moments in life. Your neighbors will see you whenever you're out in the garden, and you're tempted to have a massive row with your family how you speak to one another, how you treat one another, how you treat the postman and the bin man and the neighbor that really annoys you and upsets you, how the, the people in work observe you. I urge you. And what does is, what is he urge them into? He urges them into love. You'll see it in the section. Look at chapter 3, verses 11 through to 13. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Love would increase, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another all the more. Love permeates throughout this ordinary Christian life, and it comes out as you're sanctified. It comes out of the Christian as they live for Jesus. So verses 4 to 5. does he zoom in on then? Each of you, each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He zooms in here in one area. It could have been many different areas, but he zooms in in this letter on this one area of normal life, of the sexual life, And he zooms in here on sexual immorality because Paul knows that in the ordinary day-to-day life that this will be one of the temptations that people will face. So to live a life for Jesus means that you live a sexually pure life. If you're married, then sexual relations are for the marriage bed and it alone, and not for people outside of it. For the single person, well, there's no sexual relationships for you. Full stop. Why? Do not live like the Gentiles, he says in this. Do not live like the Gentiles because the love of God must be doing something in you. It must work itself out in the normal things, in, in relationships, in money, in, in how we live our lives in the day-to-day life. The ordinary decisions in life, what does he say, are speaking volumes about the gospel. How you walk is a depiction of the gospel. Because the people around us, as we go about our daily lives, for some this is the closest that they will ever be to Jesus, is through you. They may never sit in a church. They may never have a Bible or hear it opened up or preached upon. And so you're the closest thing that they get to hear. So verse 12, walk properly before them. Be sanctified. Be holy. This is the ordinary life that God has called you to. But it's the supernatural life, isn't it? Not how we start it. His power at work in us. This is His will. To be holy in the spreadsheets, in the emails, in the staff room, and in the playground, and in the uni halls, we need to know that the world is watching. And the world is thinking to itself, what does the gospel look like? And so the essence of what we're thinking about in the ordinary Christian life is what? It's all the way back into Genesis. And it's fulfilling the creation mandate of what God gives to His people. Live in this world. Enjoy this world. Enjoy the simple things in the world. Multiply in this world. That is what it means to be human. That's what the ordinary life looks like. The call of God. Live holy lives. And then secondly, we want to see this, that within the Christian life, then, we, we want to have contentment. We want to be content in the Christian life. Not that we want to be comfortable, but we want to be content. So, how do we, how do we illustrate this? How do we think about these t- two different terms? Just thinking about it like this. If we, if we were all at a Boxing Day match, Portadown versus Glen Avon, and let me dream for a moment, okay, Portadown Down or one nil up, in the Boxing Day match, in that moment, I am content that we're one nil up, but I am not comfortable because Glenavon are hitting the crossbar, they're striking the ball against the post, they're coming very close to scoring a goal. I'm content that we're one up, but I'm certainly not comfortable. And so the Christian life, the ordinary Christian life, we should have contentment, but we should not be comfortable in it. We should be content because of what God has done in our lives. Look at verse eleven. Aspire. Aspire to what? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to be content and to work with your hands as we have instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The danger is tonight that we hear about the ordinary Christian life, following Jesus in the normal patterns and rhythms of life, and we think, well, that's happy. That's happy days for us because we get to be comfortable. We'll just sit back. We'll chill out. That is not the call of God. The call of God is hard work, sanctification, growing in holiness, saying no to our desires, killing the old self is hard work. But we are still to be content in our lives. Here's what Michael Horton, if you want to hear more about this uh, this subject that we're just scratching the surface, surface of tonight. Michael Horton has a book called Ordinary, and, and he talks about how we can live the sustainable faith in a radically restless world. Here's what he says about this. The difference between an idol of comfort and genuine biblical contentment is this. Being content with life means accepting the circumstances in which God's providence has placed me. Being content with my place as an average middle-class guy in an American suburb with a wife and four children, someone with various callings to my family, church, and neighborhood. We need to stop believing the lie that has told us that we've got to be all world changers. Because all that that does is breed this restlessness in our souls. And you hit your quarter-life crisis around 25, and you reflect, and you think, oh, no, my life is vanishing before me. I haven't achieved all the things that I want to achieve. And then you get to the midlife crisis, and I don't know what you do. You might go on a big holiday, or you start to crack up. You start to unravel at the seams, don't you? This restlessness not content in what god has placed you to do but even here's a bit of perspective for us even the the superstars in each generation even the most able and famous people what do they get the most able and famous people at, at most maybe get one or two statues alex ferguson one of the best football managers in all of the world what does he have statue at Aberdeen, a statue at Old Trafford, and he doesn't even get the stadium named after him, he just gets a stand. And in a hundred years from now, the statue will probably fall over, and someone will ask, who who even was that guy? I don't know. Your great-great-grandparents, you probably don't know their name, and if you do know their name, you could probably tell me very little about them, Be content where God has placed us. Verse 11, aspire to live quietly. That's not what the world tells us. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed and so that you may walk properly before the outsiders. Aspire to mind your own business, not to be the gossip, not to be the busybody, aspire to love and be patient and to be good and to be gentle, aspire to be joyful and kind and faithful and self-controlled, and then what? And then to slip from this scene of time and go to glory. To be faithful where God has called you. And that's what Paul's saying to this church in Thessalonica, settle down, Don't be so restless. Content yourself. And then die faithfully for me. The problem is for us that that we, we push Jesus outside of us and we keep Jesus at arm's length and we are not truly satisfied by him. And whenever we're not truly satisfied by Jesus, by what we've read here in chapter 1 and verse 4 about his power coming to work in us, and in verse 5 and the Holy Spirit coming and changing our lives, and the joy that that brings in verse 6, whenever we push that outside of ourselves, then it's like we get on a boat. And we get on a boat and we go and we search for satisfaction. It's like going and trying to find a dolphin. And we, we run about this boat frantically searching from side to side and out the back and out the front searching. Can we, can we get a glimpse of satisfaction? And what do we do? We convince ourselves that we see the fin just in the distance. We get a, a little glimpse. There it is there. And we chase it. God speaks to us tonight. He says, you must be satisfied in me, content in me. How does that happen? Through this, what we have already referred to as the ordinary means of grace. Coming to church. Week in and week out. Reading from our Bibles. Saying our prayers. It's it's ordinary things. But supernatural things that God has provided for us to grow us in strength and in, glo- in the glory of Him. It's in, the, it's in the weekly rhythm of public worship. It's in how we respond to the small things. It's in how we live in the humdrum of day-to-day life. It's being faithful in the small until our recall It's a little phrase I was trying to work on this week. It's being faithful in the small until God calls us back to himself, until our recall. And so this notion that we're going to change the world, that we're going to live this radical life, well, how do we do that? We do it through the ordinary places and the ordinary means with the ordinary people that look just like us that God has called us to witness to. That's who Jesus turns the world upside down with, isn't it? Ordinary men, going about their ordinary lives, telling ordinary stories, pointing other ordinary people to this extraordinary Savior. And so to live the life that we're called to live means that we we actually are radical in the sense of we're so different from this world. It's being faithful to your spouse whenever the world says, just be unfaithful. It's saying yes to taking a day off to be with your family and to rest whenever the world says you need to work. It's saying yes to having that person over for dinner, even though the world would say that's an inconvenience. It's saying yes if you have the ability to adopt or to foster. It's saying yes to being there for people in our church family. It's saying yes to having meals with people, doing the ordinary things of life that God has given us. And this is how we endure. This is how we endure all the way to the end. It's slow and it's low. It's setting the pace and it's going after it for the next 40 and 50 and 60 years of our lives. Being in church morning and evening on the Lord's Day, joining in this supernatural experience that we have, reading the Bible, even though it sounds like a chore, but it is life-giving, joy-bringing, world-changing. It's going into the place of prayer, even whenever you think it's just for the, the CEOs of the Christian life, those who are way ahead of you. It's partaking in the Lord's Supper and being baptized. Here's what one person says, one commentator, a guy called Jonathan Woodyard, he says this. And I, I want us to hear these words and for them to bring you freedom tonight. You don't have to move to the jungle in order to live radically for Jesus. That might be what Jesus calls you to do with your life, or Jesus might simply call you to invite the single mom at church over for dinner. You might be called to adopt a child or to speak out against sex trafficking at the next small group meeting. In other words, living radically for Jesus might not look that radical at all. And you might never be recognized for your ordinary Christian life, but that's okay. The ordinary Christian life is about the fame of God's name and not yours. this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I hope this comes like a a refreshing cold shower on a warm day. That That We're not called to be these superstars with these unrealistic expectations placed upon us, but that Jesus says to follow Him in the ordinary. Whenever we face sin, whenever we face the moments of suffering and pain that come into our lives, to be faithful to Him, to keep going. And so as a church, this is one of our foundations that that there's not going to be smoke machines or big performances here at the front, but we're going to open God's Word week after week. And Nigel and myself and whoever else is going to preach are going to try to work hard in the text to feed the congregation here week after week, and we're going to gather for prayer week after week, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to have people baptized, and we're going to be joined together here as a body, and we're going to do life together, and we're going to be open and real with one another that sin exists in our lives, and that we stumble, and that we fall, and that we mess up again and again but there is grace and there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So we finish. Jesus calls people from every background, every people group, teachers and technicians, calls housewives and hotel owners. He calls builders and bank managers to come and to follow him in this generation, in this place with the people that you have around you in your lives for his glory. And he knows what he's doing. He's the extraordinary one. He's the one that is changing people. He just calls us to be faithful along the way. To do what you've been called to do in your workplace. Jesus changes you in the ordinary, and he changes ordinary people because he is the extraordinary God. This is the one that we follow, and this is the one that we serve, and this is the one that we live for.